Hello and welcome to The Other Marthas, the show where a drama student and a film graduate try to make sense of things we wish we were qualified in instead. A quick disclaimer before we get started, we don't claim to be experts in any of the fields we'll be discussing, so while everything we say will be based on individual research, it's just a bit of fun and we suggest that you take everything we say with a pinch of salt. Today we bring you part two of our Everest blockbuster series in which we move on from the 1996 catastrophe and start discussing one of Everest's deadliest seasons since 2006. Shall I tell you my tale now? I would love for you to tell me your tale. Wonderful. So before I tell my tale, I want mm. to tell you something dramatic that I did the other day. Mm -hmm. Last night, in fact. So as we've touched on, I work in TV and film. Mm -hmm. Often we have night shoots in uh, outdoors, quite cold locations. Mm -hmm. I was genuinely looking at Everest equipment oh <laughs> where for cold outdoor night shoots. Oh, because I see. my thought is like, if you can climb Everest in it, you can definitely stand in a freezing Such cold a good field. Point. I mean, it's, it's going to be morning. like minus 25 as an average, I think, up in the death zone kind of area, which is just inconceivable. Very cold. I just... Yeah. Here's the thing. I just thought if mm. I was wearing a thousand pound... Everest climbing boots. Yeah. Um, I'd hope they'd be warm. Oh, you would really, you would be sending those back with some strong words. I think, I think Millet was the company I was looking at. Millet, lovely. And I also, um, I found myself on the most bizarre website you've ever seen. Right. I think it's called like Everest Supplies or something like that. I mean, last week I was on a very bizarre website as well. Check out last week's episode. Um, to find out which website I was on. Which but website yeah, I was on? Was... Oh, <laughs> that one. Yeah, it's a funny. You'll have to watch last week's episode. I um, so I went on this website and it was like you get millet Everest boots mm. and you also get a down all-in-one suit. And yes. I was thinking, watch me turn up on set for in a night shoot. Boots in my Everest gear. Like, Amazing. hi, I'm never going to climb Everest, but I've spent £2,000 on a suit and boots because I'm cold naturally. I think, to be fair, if you had the money, that would be a very sensible thing. No, you don't. But <laughs> it would be a very sensible thing to spend it on if you spend a lot of your time being cold. Yes. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, like, I full-on nearly caught frostbite on some of the shoots I've been on. Oh, God. Like, my toes were, like, blistering. Oh. And going white, yeah, Jesus. frostbite. That's that's frostbite, lads. So that's that. Um, <laughs> the second thing I want to say before I get into this is I watched a documentary. Uh, so this, the story I'm telling, 2006, um, mostly focusing on um, the Mark Ingalls expedition and David Sharp. I watched a documentary that I believe was made by not really in but by new zealanders yeah yeah Most i think people... new zealand i don't know if they have a very strong climbing team oh they or something but they seem to be very prolific climbers i think they've got a lot of mountains that makes sense so there's quite a do. community of it but yeah, yeah um so because i watched this documentary that is narrated and also everyone in the interviews other than one guy, were from New Zealand. Mm. If some of the more technical climbing terms or the names are pronounced with a slightly weird New Zealand accent, it's 
because they're the only people I've ever seen pronounce them. Totally fair. And I've only ever read them elsewise. In your so, own voice, presumably. Yes, in the book that I read. So It would be great if you'd just done it in an Irish accent. But I assume you do I do sometimes read in accents. Hmm. Because I, to practice the accent, when I you're reading, well, you often come across words you don't, you don't think about so yeah and you're like hmm how would one say that like yeah this anyway um so that is my snowsuit desire and my new zealand disclaimer onto the tale so um david sharp i again the nick keel book that i read mostly followed this situation so most of my information is from that mm-hmm. and then i also watched documentary um but david sharp was um a fan of Everest. He'd tried to climb it quite a few times. I think it was, I think this one was his third attempt. God. And twice before, I think he had to turn back, which seems to happen often with climbers where they kind of put everything into their like, whatever attempt they've decided is their last. Yeah they put it all into that and often make mistakes. Yeah, and you can see why though as well, because they've survived oh, yeah. it however many times before and they're like, this time I will just push to the top. It's not going to be that different, but... Yes. So he was on, a, David Sharp was on a group expedition with a company called Asian Trekking. Mm. Oh, yes. One of those companies those that companies. I think they charge around $8,000. Bearing and in how much does your average like actually equipping you for Everest thing cost I'm not sure but it's a so lot the group that Mark Ingalls was climbing with is mm. called Himex mm-hmm. um, run by Russell Bryce mm-hmm. and I believe generally an expedition with them costs $40,000 right. so this is l- like less than a quarter of yes and again it's one of those that gives you a spot a base camp and your permit to climb wow and that's about it. Sometimes they also give you transport from, like, wherever you come in. But either to... way, equipment-wise, you're completely on your own. Guide-wise, you're completely on your own. Yes. Wow. So, but because he was, like, quite a prolific climber, I think he'd already climbed another 8,000-metre mountain. Mm, mm-hmm. So it seems like quite experienced people go for that kind of have their own way of doing things yeah go for the cheaper option which makes sense because you want if to you bring know how to climb a mountain to. then crack on yeah most yeah. of the time um so it was a bunch of people but they basically just had their tents in the same place they weren't working together mm. and he there are reports of him being like not like a loner, like he had friends that were also climbing at the same time. He wasn't climbing with them, but they were mm. they were in the same season, so he'd be seen with them. I think there was a guy called McGuinness was his friend. Okay. Um, and he also liked, he always brought with him the complete works of Shakespeare and the Bible. On his climbs? On his climbs, yeah. Oh, I mean, like, to be fair, is it David Sharpwood or um, McThingy? David Sharp. David Sharp. To be fair, like at least if you're in a situation where you know you can't be saved, but you're you have your faculties about you now, then like reading the book of your faith or something well, would presumably be quite comforting. Generally, 
I'll get onto it, but generally with the summit, you don't take a lot. No. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's a little bit about him mm-hmm. um, with his Bible. And he was kind of seen throughout the season as in, I think he, I think it was around, yeah, it was the 13th of May was his summit attempt, but in the days leading up to that, because I think you spend about two months on Everest and about 10 days actually climbing. Yeah, a lot of it is acclimatising, isn't it? Yeah. So in his time on the mountain at Advanced Base Camp, he was spending quite a lot of time, like, doing a little climb up, leaving supplies for himself, coming back down, like, he was kind of making his own preparation. trail. That makes a lot of sense. And he also climbed with no radio and no oxygen because he was one of those who likes the challenge of being completely unsupported. Which, I mean, I was going to say good for you, but... Mm. um, Oh, I've got... Here it is, written, he climbed climbed the sixth highest mountain. I don't know what Mm. it's called, but he had. Cool. So in 2006, weather forecasts were good and encouraged more amateur climbers. So um, there were a lot of people on the mm. mountain in 2006. This brings us to our main players of the drama that would unfold. Ooh. Mark Ingalls, who I've mentioned before. Um, so during this time, Russell Bryce, who runs HIMEX, was involved with a documentary crew um, from Tigris Productions in Mm -hmm. Bristol, and they were filming a documentary about climbing Everest. Hmm. One of the reasons why this group was really interesting for the documentary is that Mark Ingalls was a double amputee just below his knee. Okay. And he had special legs that Mm. had crampons on them wow so he could climb and actually one of the guys i think he's called mark fetu or mm-hmm. wetu i don't know because again they pronounced it one way and i don't know okay so i'm gonna go i'm gonna go with fetu and yeah. hope um i believe it was actually mark fetu who made his legs so that's fun amazing um there was also another guy climbing with them who he was an american biker and he had one of his legs completely pinned so he couldn't bend his ankle oh that's got to be really hard when you're climbing yes and there was another guy who was older and he had just had surgery and the surgeon he had i think he had cancer and the surgeon had agreed to operate from the front rather than the back so that the guy could wear his pack on everest wow so this is a team of like survivors survivors yeah compromised but survivors and um i've like the book that i read said that bryce does specialize like if you are physically disabled Mm. bryce is the white the guy you want to go to because he has accommodated for a lot of people to climb everest fantastic he has like a policy of keeping people cautious on the mountain because he knows that they've spent all of this money to climb the mountain but if they're like i'm going to the summit and he doesn't want it to happen it won't happen yeah um he often doesn't climb with his teams Mm -hmm. he camps at third or col which i think are the same thing third camp or col um Mm. to watch from below yeah okay that makes sense like he kind of runs everything from there which yeah 
no offense to your guys but i would say going up the mountain with your climbers when you run the expedition isn't necessarily the best move yeah because if you get lost there's no one running the whole operation which was very real when both mm. team leaders went AWOL they also have a guy called Dorje it was his sixth attempt on the mountain mm-hmm. and my favorite person Ferber he's the strongest Sherpa guide on Everest wow he is an absolute legend and we will get into it. Amazing, okay. Also, there's a guy called Wayne Alexander, aka Cowboy. Mark Ingalls is a double amputee from below the knee. Mm-hmm. He was a guide on Mount Cook in New Zealand and oh. he was stuck in an ice cave for 13 days because of a blizzard <gasps> with his friend. Oh my god. And was this pre-amputation or post? Yes. So this is why his right. legs were amputated. He was in the ice cave for 13 days and um, he wasn't able to be rescued for 13 days. But they could get food to them. And he said in the documentary, like, I was happy to wait there for 13 days because I knew it wasn't safe for anyone else to come and get me. Um, and after that he lost both of his legs most experienced Everest climbers like the the ones who have climbed 800 like 8,000 meter mountains before yeah have experienced either the death of a companion or not nearly dying themselves or both probably both multiple times yes um so the guy that's climbing with Ingalls is Fetu Mark Fetu Mm -hmm. he went for the summit late with his right. friend Mike Reinberg and he had to leave Reinberg because he went blind from a cerebral edema mm-hmm. um, on the mountain and Fetu lost all of his toes on that event. Wow. So that is context for the 13th of May when Mark Ingalls takes a photo of the summit and they see Sharp alone trying to summit Everest late in the day. <sighs> Yeah. Because Mark knows that's not what we do. Yes. But there's nothing they can do for him because no. up he goes. He's a dot in the sky. Exactly. The weird thing about this is in the book I read, mm. they passed... Um, in the book I read, Nick claims that this team passed David a few times going up the mountain and they encountered him oh. a few times. He was very, very slow and just kept trucking along pausing yeah. kept going and he carried on when obviously they'd decided to stop that does kind of change things in terms of not culpability but just oh well no because the thing is is when you're climbing everest you actually climb so slowly oh like, yeah people see it as like oh i'm so strong like climbing everest actually you're shuffling along you can barely breathe like there's five steps and then you yeah. stop like, yeah i was gonna say like it I... isn't it isn't like oh he's not climbing very strong no one's climbing strong no everyone that's is true climbing like they've never climbed a mountain before that's true like i um i've climbed at nowhere near that altitude obviously but um i think around fifteen thousand feet so about half the height of the summit um and it is like altitude it it doesn't get to the everest extent until you're at like 25,000 feet but it does it does just just change thing and you'll look and go oh that's easy i'll get there in half an hour 
but you just are moving more slowly. Um, it's weird. I don't think you can say that there's culpability because he's climbing slowly because, and I'm not saying you are, but mm. like everyone climbs slowly. Yeah. My, my point wasn't about him climbing slowly. It was the fact that they kept passing him if they, if they did. No, they, um, it was sort of that they kept encountering him. But uh-huh. when you're like the thing with Everest, a lot of it's like one at a time stuff. Yeah. And so like you do keep encountering people because yeah, that's true. You might stop at the side for a bit. They'll trudge past yeah. you. Then they stop and you trudge like it's sort of. And I guess then if he's way ahead of you by the time you've decided to turn around and you're like, is that the guy we saw without oxygen? Yeah. Earlier? Not a lot you can do yeah. at that point. So um, they calculated that he would have had to have spent 12 hours in the death zone Mm. to reach the summit from camp four at the speed that he was going. Blimey. Um, Which I think is normally about eight hours. So it's not massively over, but it's three hours longer than you want. Four hours. It's actually 12 hours longer than you want in a place called the death zone, but okay. (laughs) Apparently there's some Um, lovely vistas. Yeah, I suppose you do. So on the 14th of May, they wake up at 11am to begin their bid for the summit and they note that it's a really cold morning Mm. which like probably every morning's cold on Everest but it's especially cold and one guy even said he had to put on his electric boot heaters again I want them so cool (laughs) um so they said they early so that they could get ahead of the pack because they looked down the mountain and all they could see were head torches just right. coming up. Because yeah. uh, So another thing about Bryce and his Himex expeditions is most expeditions have three camps up Everest. So they have, they're sort of like at, at slightly different points and from camp three is lower than Bryce's camp four. And then, so you have a longer walk up to the summit. Whereas Bryce's camp four is sort of, less time to the summit but a harder camp to be at i see yeah yeah Yeah. that makes sense. whereas i think on the south side they just naturally have four but on the north bryce has another one and so they see this pack of head torches coming and they're like we need to go yeah because these guys are fairly experienced climbers and if you get stuck behind more amateurish climbers on everest it's really frustrating Mm. I know I would be full of rage yeah. if I was like, I'm running out of oxygen, I'm freezing yeah. cold, and you are being so slow. Again, yeah, it's like, it's, there's frustrating, and then there's, I brought eight hours worth of oxygen, and mm. you're using up an hour. Oh yeah. my god. <laughs> well, apparently they did encounter quite a few people that just wouldn't move out of their way, and that were going really slowly, and they were saying, let us pass, yeah. and they wouldn't let them pass. So, oh, here we are. Russell Bryce was at Camp 2, 1,000 metres below. Wow, Um, Camp 2, amazing. He monitors the... Oh, I see. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, I forgot he wasn't climbing with them. No, he doesn't. He he just watches. Mm -hmm. Because he's he's got a good view up the mountain. Yeah, and then he can radio them and be like, there's a cloud coming up. Yes, and also, Bryce apparently has some of the best weather forecasting technology there is on Everest. Wow. Um, he pays a lot to companies to use it. And so he gets quite salty. Um, often, if people see Bryce's lot heading up, they also head up. Oh, no, so they're getting they kind know. of free tip. Yeah, beca- yeah, because they know 
if he's sending people up, it's going to be good. Mm. Um, which is like, they, I think they call him the big boss as well. That's cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> the book I read is very favourable towards Bryce. So, you Sounds know, there, there are things that maybe we'll get into. There's a rush not to get caught in traffic jams because you don't want to get caught in traffic jams because traffic mm. jams are annoying when you're in a lovely warm car. They're yes. even more annoying when you're freezing to death. With limited <laughs> oxygen. Yes. Throughout the climb, everyone, all of the um, group are being encouraged by the Sherpas that are with them to keep moving to prevent frostbite. Right. Because, again, we spoke about it in your part, but if you keep moving, the planet, like, the hope is that you don't yeah. get frostbite. Well, I mean, it's, like, pretty much basic as it's easier for you to literally freeze if you're yes, still, exactly. obviously, so don't do that, <laughs> if possible. Not, like, blaming anyone for being still in Everest. I'm sure it's very difficult <laughs> to keep moving oh, on Everest. Slow pokes. Idiots, yeah, no. The other thing is that because they set off at 11pm, you're mm-hmm. climbing in the dark. Yes. 8,500 metres up. Yeah. Which is so bizarre to me and terrifying. Um, one of the guys in the documentary, to be honest, I didn't know who was who because, like, they put their names at once and I can't memorise four men's faces. I had faces. that issue as well. Um, <laughs> full stop, I can't do it. I only yeah. know four men. But one of them said, you get a sense of evil. Another guy said, you could never carry someone down here mm. and Fetu said there are a lot of bodies you have to climb over yeah. yeah so that was their review at one in the morning they get to green boots cave Aha. um so green boots for the uninitiated mm-hmm. uh was an indian climber who died in a cave and his body's still there and they call him green boots because he's got green boots and he's a popular resting point, isn't he, for climbers on the north side? I, the weird thing is, is no one said that in any of the things. Oh, like, no one said, oh, we rest here. People sort of say, like, we move on by, like, we say, yeah, hi like, to him, we went, we oh, we're at green boots now, we're close. Yeah. Yeah. Um, rather than rest. But maybe maybe my source do. was making it up. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's, it's more of like a landmark, I suppose. Yeah. Um, green boots also. I had seen pictures of green boots before this. Mm. I'd then forgotten and went back to my initial assumption that green boots was like a climber from the forties. Right. So I assumed they were kind of like green, like dark green leathery boots just poking out of snow. Yeah, no, they're lurid, aren't they? It's like bright green and he's like lying sort of in the recovery position. Yeah, pretty much. Which is quite a, odd thing to see yeah i think that's the thing is um because the 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 piece i watched that featured the green boots cave which was a while ago this was before researching for this the lady talking was saying you know it's common to have a sit and and sort of get your breath back before that last bit so you just sit Mm -hmm. next to green boots um which must be really bizarre but regardless of whether or not that's true just the fact that at any point you're very likely sitting next to someone who also looks like they're just chilling. I think that's the thing. I think what strikes me about Green Boots is that it looks like he's sleeping. Yeah. And he's just... Yeah, none of the bodies up there are are ever gonna age, really, are they? 
Yeah, but I think it, I think it's the way he's lying is such like a vulnerable. Yeah. Well, presumably the guy died while having a rest. Me? Yeah, probably. I think not a lot. Not a lot's known. I no. think they're, they're not even certain who he is. There's mm. a guy that they're pretty sure it's him. Right. But it's not confirmed. It's just like he was climbing Everest and he's not come back. So right. I think and he's maybe had green boots. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the guys said about green boots, when you die, you stop being flesh and blood and you become part of the mountain. Wow. Really interesting like, way of thinking. Yeah. Which I think... If you are someone who loves mountain climbing and like Everest is the pinnacle, mm. maybe that's not such a bad thing. Like obviously it's a bad thing to be dead, mm. but if you die climbing the highest. Yeah. Doing the thing you love. Yeah, like obviously it's no fun to freeze no. to death on a mountain. But, but yeah, that's what that's what they did with Rob Hall's body as well. They um because they could get to it. And they retrieved his wedding band for his wife, but his wife said, leave him there. I think he would like to be there. Yeah, I think there are definitely people. And I think if I was someone who wanted to climb Everest, mm. I think I would probably be one of the people that said, if I die, leave my body there because it, like, yeah. it's not in anyone's way. Um, yeah, exactly. I think I'd be the same. I would. I think I would want to be, rather than like thrown down the side, which some people do want for privacy yeah i think i would quite enjoy being a landmark yeah <laughs> and i'd probably could... haunt it too yeah you'd be the poltergeist and you could just make sure you wear something really distinctive so that if you do die you will be a landmark oh yeah i'd be like oh um and that's martha she climbed everest in a chicken suit because yeah. she to be a landmark <laughs> I love that. And you're not you're not chicken suit, you're that's Martha. She climbed we want to emphasize this was a person who was this stupid. I'd have a sign. I'm Martha, I climbed Everest in this chicken suit. I climbed Everest and all I got was this lousy chicken suit. I want to be a landmark. Uh, sorry for um, laughing. Obviously it's it's well, horrifying. I mean, but... yes, but it's we're already talking about it. Yeah, true. Um so they are climbing past green boots and one of the men turns to the other to say, Here's green boots, and there's someone else in the cave. Yes. Oh god. Our friend Mark, whatever your name is, Wetu Fetu. Um <laughs> I don't I don't know what it is. I genuinely don't. Shall I, I look with it Fatu? up? You've been no, just go with Fatu. You've been going with Fatu. Oh god, if I look you up and it's Wetu now, I'm gonna Yeah, lose no, my mind. we're not going back. Just go with Fetu. Walk Fetu. <laughs> Walk Fetu. Mark Fetu uh realizes that this is the guy they saw the previous evening climbing mm. alone. Their assumption is that he summited the night before mm. and ascended in the dark stopped up for the night but because the night was so cold the coldest of the season ah. it did not go well for him um, bear in mind also at this point um no one had survived a night that high on everest because i think the first person to survive a night actually in the death zone was lincoln hall wasn't it we'll get on to him. okay okay <laughs> so um do you know what from now on i'm just gonna call fetu mark because i'm not confident in it great 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 so Mark... Wait, what was the other guy's name? Eng Engels. Was, is he also called Mark? 
He is also called Mark, but Mark Engels will be Engels. Mark Wetu Fetu will be Mark. Fabulous. Um, just like we're both called Martha and there's no confusion there. No, because <laughs> we're the only ones listening. Let's drink to that. <laughs> so Mark encourages Sharp to get moving. They kind of shout at him, come on, we need to get going. Get yourself down the mountain. Um, they, uh, they sort of also presumed that... Um, Sharp's head torch broke and so he decided instead of stumbling down in the actual dark he would stop at green boots yeah but they tell him that because there are so many people climbing this morning he could follow the line of torches ah yeah 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 to get down so he is sharp at this point kind of responsive no ah. he is sat kind of hunched over with his hands around his knees and his head down Oof. he's shivering and breathing okay but that's about it i think right. he also looks at one of the men but he doesn't stand or move so they encourage sharp to get moving and then they moved on because the guides had a duty to their clients and their climbers Cowboy. sorry i've just i'm just re and this is they know that he spent the night because yes. they okay Yes, they know he spent the night. And so um, one of the guys described him as, this is one of the um, guys who's like climbed Everest loads, um, described him as more dead than alive. Yeah. I just, I, I, it just seems weird that if you've climbed Everest that many times, you'd be like, I know that he spent the night here. No one has ever survived spending a night up this high. Get moving. Good boy, David. Up we go. I think, well, no, they weren't trying to get him up. They're trying to get him down. No, 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 I know. But, but they just Yeah, well, I think the thing is, is that what I've heard and seen and read a lot of is mm. if they know he spent the night and they know no one's ever spent the night, they know he's basically dead. They don't mm. even know at this point how much he can comprehend because he isn't responding to them yeah. in any way. So and I guess they feel the most helpful thing is to encourage him as though they think he's going to live rather than yeah. saying, do you have any so, last rights? I think... I think at this point, they made the decision to encourage him to move. And when he didn't, they then kind of made the assessment of, okay, oh, that, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Dying. Yeah. Let's move on. Yeah. But cowboy, which is so weird calling this man cowboy, what I'm going to tell you. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, God. Because it makes him sound very like cavalier. Yeah. But he was actually massively emotionally affected by this. God. He said, it was the worst thing he'd seen in his life. God. He said, um, God bless you, rest in peace. Which, like, I'm sure you're trying to be nice, cowboy, but the man might still know what you're saying to him. Yeah, he maybe doesn't need to hear that. Probably doesn't need to hear that, but, you know, I mean, he seems yeah. like he was a religious, a religious man, so maybe he did Yeah, maybe appreciate he appreciated it. it, yeah. We don't know. And he said in the documentary that he wanted to touch him and that his biggest regret was that he didn't make contact with Sharp when he saw him. It's an interesting biggest regret. Well I think as I get more into it like I am on the side of the team and their decision to leave him mm. and I'll talk about that yeah. when I share more of the story yeah. but he's just you know as a preliminary point he's so high up there's so much technical climbing 
Yeah. Oh yeah. There's very little chance they could actually help him. I just think, and he spent the night there, the coldest night of the season. So it's kind of like, obviously it's not ideal to leave someone to die. No. But I just, I don't think, I don't feel like I can judge these people because it's not like they were evil in their decision. They probably were trying to, you know. I mean, as far as they were concerned, they were basically leaving someone dead as opposed to dying, I suppose, which is a very different thing. I think the phrase more dead than alive sums up how they felt about Sharp. Is that like, and I've seen a lot in what I've read that basically if you can't walk off of Everest past a certain point, you don't come off Everest. Yeah, exactly. Because you have to walk. Yeah. And I don't know about the North face, but again, the South face has places where you literally need to be able to support your weight on a rope. And if you yeah. can't do that, you can't there get down. Some, and no yeah. one can support someone else's weight and their weight on a rope. No. So. Yeah. So there are like, you know, there are points where it, it just isn't possible. Yeah. And so I don't, Yeah. I don't feel like I can judge these. No, my, my concern is more, and I'm aware that I have not by any means heard the whole story yet, but just the fact that they then continue trying to summit rather than maybe staying with him and radioing down. Well, uh, okay. One of the guides claimed that he did radio down to okay. Bryce, mm-hmm. who was at um, his base. R- um, Bryce claims he didn't receive a radio call. Mm. So this is where people start wondering, like, is Bryce an evil genius? Yeah. I don't think he's an evil genius. Maybe he didn't get a radio call. The guys mm. that say well, the guide that says that he radioed says he was at altitude maybe he didn't didn't press a button maybe the radio didn't work and he didn't realize because he's seen a dying man he's at altitude he's worried about his climbers yeah there's a lot going on so yeah absolutely um and bryce writes a log of all of the communication that he receives Mm. with timestamps. so it would be weird that he wouldn't put this down especially because of what happens later a lot of room forever that isn't anyone being evil no it's just people in very extreme circumstances making decisions that the majority of us will never have to make absolutely yeah and bryce is adamant that he did not receive a radio call Mm -hmm. so he also comes across in the documentary i watched as quite defensive but once Mm. i get into the stuff that happened after it's understandable i I would also be defensive yeah 30 to 40 people also passed to David Sharp in the cave and there are no other radio calls in, no other reports that anyone stopped for him. can't believe um, that. Some people may have thought he was green boots. Maybe. Um, he was kind of tucked into the back of the cave. Green boots is kind of along the side and his shoes stick out mm. and David was in the back. So if they saw him at all, they might have been like, oh. Same guy. I don't really know how they would think that, but um, some people might have thought he was dead already because he, like even the earlier guys assumed he was dead to start with. And it was only when they looked at him for a while, they saw that he was shivering. Yeah. I think, I feel like I've heard um, that some, I think it was a group of Chinese climbers might have stopped and given him water. Okay. Well, yeah, there were a lot of Chinese climbers on Everest that day. Yeah. yeah, I could be making that up, but I, I, I think that's the thing, but not massively helpful. Well, you know. Yeah, you do yeah. what you can. It's a nice yes. gesture. So at this point, Engels 
oxygen mask valve breaks. Aye. So he basically, like, over half of the oxygen that he's meant to be getting from his tank is now leaking out, which means he has to either turn up the tank less time with the oxygen, but more initially, or run on less. So because Ingalls had even more of a lack of oxygen than everyone else, and he also had extreme pain in his legs, um, like in his stumps, Mm. um, he was really struggling. And um, also a fun fact about May 14th, 2006 was Everest was actually sticking out of the atmosphere that day. What? Uh, yes, a quote from the guide space had come down to meet us. How yeah. does that happen? Well, because, like, you know, there's the atmosphere sphere around yeah. Earth, and Mount Everest is so tall that sometimes the summit just pokes its way out. So, I genuinely wasn't aware. So, does the atmosphere just kind of like bob a little bit? I assume so. I, I mean, I'm not, I an guess a- that makes sense. I mean, it's not, it's like gaseous but wouldn't that yeah. mean that at the very summit um you can't breathe because there's no at- atmosphere no because there are layers aren't there of the atmosphere right right the, right so the... it's like oh getting a bit ozone up here yeah exactly right. because they actually um they like have pressure gauges and things like that and the guy looked at his pressure gauge and was like oh we're in space <laughs> that's mad um yeah and then they were describing climbing to the summit as you take five steps and a rest but it's even slower than that Mm. you don't have this revelation of the summit there's just nothing in front of you anymore wow i yeah like i assume like the way that i've walked up in comparison to everest very small hills (laughs) is i ragefully stare at my own feet until i've reached the top so then it's like ah yes and so i assume it must be similar to that because you're looking at the rope and moving yourself along with yeah. the safety ropes you're making sure you're stepping where you should be and so eventually you're just like there's no more mountain to climb up yeah and also to be fair there are um you know that there's a lot of video taken obviously from the summit of Everest and it does look amazing the weird thing is is that the pictures that this team took they're mm. like oh we took our Everest pictures and it like put the Everest pictures on screen and it was like him against like a white wall which I assume is like ice or snow and I was like yeah <laughs> you could be um, anywhere mate can you like turn the other way because <laughs> I could take a picture in front of a white wall right now <laughs> dear yeah I there are a lot of those actually like where it's just snow in the background it's like that's great but you could be at snow dome if you just turn a little that way we can see the millions of flags and the view from 8,000 metres up. Yeah. But, but apparently I, mean, I guess not. It's that, that's all kind of old to them at this point. Um, Cowboy, our friend Cowboy, described it as a very sober happy. Oh. And um, Ingalls, who uh, is a big fan of Sir Edmund Hillary, uh, he said, I've shared a footstep, uh, I've shared a footstep with Sir Ed. Oh, only nice. one because Ed climbed the the south, and um, right. Ingalls climbed the north. But he said, "But it's the one that counts." Which <laughs> I appreciate. That's really sweet. So at this point, Ingalls' oxygen is mostly depleted. He's got frostbitten fingers and painful stumps. Get down. And he doesn't want to fall out of his legs. Yeah. So <laughs> they spend about twenty minutes on the summit. They've radioed in to let Bryce know at 11 Mm a.m. We're at Green Boots Cave again with 
the B team um, of the Himex 2006, mm. 14th of May. Is this um, still there ascending now? So Max Shire, who I believe was one of the guard, the guides, he wanted to call them guards, yeah. radioed for Bryce to tell him about David Sharp. Mm. And Bryce listened for 20 minutes and then advised them to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, with this team, they were trying to help him, trying to get him up, trying to move him. And Bryce said, it's just, it's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, to be fair, if you've, I think it really depends on what you've done because like, if you've really tried to pummel him awake and, and drag him a bit and nothing's happened, then at that point it's like, well, we've done literally everything that's within our physical capabilities that might help him. Um, so then the A team is coming back down the mountain now and uh, Sharp hasn't moved and Cowboy described it as excruciating to watch. He's still alive. Like, yes. Mm. And he, like, in the documentary, Cowboy is like, he looks so sad about it, which, like, I don't think Cowboy was as experienced as the others. I'm not certain. But just the reaction mm. that he had to seeing, like, everyone else was not, like, didn't care, but they've seen their friends die. It's very tragic on collateral that happens. Yes, whereas Cowboy seems, like, very emotional about yeah. it. Like, I um, guess if you were new to the police force and you see your first homicide and you're like, oh... Okay. Yes, exactly. Like, yeah. it's just not something people encounter in their normal yeah, life. Yeah. Here we get to Ferber Tashi, my favourite guy. Uh, Ferber spent 25 minutes with David, and I believe Ferber was with the A-team. Um, yes, he was. And he gave him some of his oxygen. He oh. moved him out into the sun, got David onto his feet, but he wow. was frozen. <gasps> in like his limbs were frozen bent oh no because he'd been sat there for i don't know how many hours at this point mm. all night and until like around midnight midday the next day so yeah. Ferber actually picked him up wow. um, and had him on his back and he managed to move and this was Ferber and another um sherpa uh-huh. guy um attempted to pick him up and he got about four steps mm. and had to put him down and returned him to the cave and he couldn't bring him down yeah but david did recover enough from the oxygen and the sun to tell them his name and the team that he was with this is why i like ferber it seems like he's done the most yeah like like he's he's, actually gone i i intend to bring him down and then gone oh i can't yes and i think he would have like ferber's climbed the mountain so many times I mm. I think he's summited thirty, wow, like eight thousand meter mountains. So Crazy. he's like experienced, and so I yeah. think probably part of him would have known he wouldn't be able to come down with him. Mm. But he, he know, tries all the same. Try, yeah. Well, he tried. So they leave him again. Ingle's descent was increasingly painful, and they managed to. Um, so he's already done the stairs. They're like fairly far down now Mm. and so they managed to make a toboggan for him that's amazing they dragged him down some of the way wow because at this point and this is i mean i know we're talking about graphic things um but i have a quite strong stomach and even this was like a bit much Mm. for me his bones 
had actually pierced the skin at the ends of his legs, like his stumps. Oh God, just from like the impact? From walking up the mountain for God. so long. Yeah. So like this guy's climbing on his own bones at this point, like yeah. toboggan him, wow. um, which they did. And in the end, Ferber put him on his back and carried him down. And the footage is amazing. Not the way I would choose to carry a human, but you know, you've done it more than me. He's like, Mark's kind of got his bum on Ferber's shoulders. And so right. he's kind of like way up here. I see. Sort of like he's kind of like sitting on his shoulders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is weird to me because that's such a high point of gravity. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't you? I was going to say, like, Fur was a lot more likely to just topple. Yes, that, but... but that's what he chose. Maybe, um, maybe it was the only way. I was going to say because, like, a piggyback would be more logical. But maybe no, but tie him on. Yeah, but maybe his legs. I'm thinking because you have to sort of brace your own legs for the piggyback, and if his legs were the problem, oh, and maybe true. just oh, hanging yeah, them you down. You hold on to his legs because his legs might fall off. There yeah, we good, are. Good thought. Yeah, it was just, it's just like, it's amazing footage, but initially I was like, why, why is he so high up? Yeah. Um, and wow. Ingle said, that's why you don't climb alone, so that those around you can address issues before it's too late. Because again, mm. the general rule is if you don't walk off of Everest, you don't get down. And although Ingalls had said before that if he had to, he'd climb on his knees. Yeah. So he's well, like, you a, would. he's a tough guy. Yeah. Um, guy. So back to David. Mm-hmm. Once they had found out his name, Russell Bryce went to find the camp. Well, I think they found out his name. I think, well, again, stories differ. So. Um, in one version, they found out his name and Bryce went to camp. And another one, when it was radioed to him that they had found this man, Bryce went to find out who he was who and was who he was with. For. Right, okay, yeah. Um, so Bryce went straight to Asian trekking, which some people have said, oh, how did you know it was Asian trekking? Like, oh, did you know more than you should have? Um, which the defence for that is Asian trekking is notoriously the least organised company on Everest. Yeah. And so he knew to go to them because he knew they wouldn't know if they were missing anyone. God. And he went into their camp. I can't believe they're licensed. Yes. He went into their camp and he said, um, are you missing someone? And it was, it took McGuinness to his friend to say, David isn't here. Um, This is a quote from Bryce. No one knew, no one from David's own camp knew he was missing until he was dead. Oh no. Like, and I think that's the difference between the tours is like, it's just complete polar opposites. To- yeah. That's the thing, like, it's basic. Just if you're going into that kind of perilous situation, you should only be allowed to go with a group of people who will keep tabs of you at all times and you have a radio so you can say if you need help. Yeah, I think um, from Bryce here again, um, this isn't a direct quote, it's just the gist of what he said. Asian trekking have the majority of fatalities and rescues needed. Mm. So, and a lot of the rescues are coordinated by HIMEX. The Ingalls team managed to survive one of the most deadly periods on Everest. When 
um, Ingalls returned home because he had quite a public profile for being a double amputee climber. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had an interview where he spoke about David Sharp. He sort of got slated by the press because right. of his... It wasn't really his decision to leave him, but because the decision to Was leave made, him. Yeah. Including by Sir Edmund Hillary, his hero. Yeah. Oh, God, um, yeah, I heard about this. So he said um, he didn't approve of their decision to leave David Sharp. It was a pathetic attitude and it was their duty to get him back to safety. Which, like, you weren't there, Edmund. Yeah, I feel like that's strong. I get that he's been there before, but also there was no one else on the mountain at the time, was there? I think also the thing is, is like, sure, you've climbed Everest. Good for you. But also maybe have some compassion yeah and also he i mean he's climbed everest and that's clearly amazing but he's not carried an inner body down everest exactly like once you've done that edmund hillary go off but until you've carried a person who's basically a dead weight from almost the summit of everest maybe keep your opinions to yourself yeah. <laughs> I'm just like no. Well, it. it's fair. It would. I just imagine. I mean, there's nothing they can do about it now. Just imagine the guilt. It would be. Horrific. Well, exactly. And like he sh- he could have said it in another way. Like, oh, maybe in the future we could do it this way. Mm. But like, he, you know. Um. So Engels had frostbite on his fingers and lost the tips, and he also had frostbite on his stumps as well as the oh bone piercing. Do you have and to get had re- to have amputated more taken off and i think it was like right below the knee at that point so he was concerned about how he would be able to continue climbing because it's it's like if you've got a bit of anchorage below the knee Mm. you can be quite secure in the yeah but surely the higher up you go the more difficult it is to yeah was it so he was he, he he was amputated slightly below the knee and then he had to go to like right below the knee? I, yes, I believe that was mm. so. I didn't write down numbers. He did say numbers and measurements, but right, right. I sort of thought I don't need to know the exact centimetre. But yeah, I mean, I guess if he's, he's used to still having some leg beyond the bending point that you can anchor, yeah. whereas it's pretty much just on the joint now, I guess. Because... Hillary said this and the way that he worded it kind of implicated Ingalls mm. because he was the most public figure of the trip yeah. because he was you know doing this amazing feat of climbing mm. Everest prosthetic legs mm. everyone started blaming Ingalls for Sharp's death and for not carrying him down here's my opinion two strong experienced Sherpa guides could not carry him down and yet they expect a man who has like both of his legs amputated and is has less oxygen than everyone else because yeah. it's broken to be able to carry him down that is like, ridiculous it's just like i get it because he was the most p- public person but this is a physically disabled man in th- one of the most if not the most extreme environments on our planet yeah other than i guess the deep ocean but then you're definitely dead yeah like and he's one of about 40 people who exactly could have and may have tried to help 
I don't know how that was who they chose to criticise when it seems like there was no criticism of Asian trekking that allowed Sharp to climb the mountain. Exactly, that's the thing. Like no contact with him. Right. Because it's it's like, I, I think a lot of the time, sort of heroic or good acts are seen as expected and therefore if people don't rise to that, then it's like they failed um mm. whereas in fact it it's amazing if someone can for example risk themselves to save another life but it shouldn't be expected they well they clearly couldn't have saved him no. i no i personally think i would have then found it very difficult to go on to the summit yes but but if you're that close to the summit yeah and you have no way of saving this man what like, there's nothing actually reprehensible about you going to the summit. I think, I think that's the thing, is that a lot of people said, well, you guys went to the summit afterwards. What would them not summiting achieve? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Nothing. The press and the public are blaming the people that did the most for him. Yeah. About the topic of blame, mm. McGuinness, Sharp's friend, uh, this is a quote from him, do I blame the people who walked past him? No. Did David expect to be rescued? Absolutely not. He was clear to me that he understood the risks. He did not want to endanger anyone else. Mm. So I think, like, if that's true, which I don't know why McGuinness would lie, I suppose, to make people feel better, but, like, if that's the case, then we can't be blaming anyone yeah. other than David Sharp because he made his decision. Yeah. Thank you for listening to The Other Marthas, the show where a drama student and a film graduate talk about things we have no business talking about. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to our channel for more. Mm -hmm.